Hello, and welcome back to the Anxiety Book Club. This is episode number 30. I'm very pleased to be joined today with Sarah Owens Woodard, a licensed psychologist, compassion cultivation training teacher, and today's guest. I recently took that compassion cultivation training eight-week course with Sarah and learned a lot about how to include loving-kindness practices in my own life. Anyways, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you're very welcome. Yeah, it's fun to be together. So I want to start with some of the real basic stuff because we're going to use some terms that people know from just being alive, but maybe don't know in the specific way that we plan to use them. Um, so in the in the context in which we'll be having our conversation, what what is compassion? I think, um, Josh, in, in compassion cultivation training, uh, we talk about compassion as being our uh, warm-hearted, caring response to suffering. And I like to talk about it as involving four steps because I think that can help people quite a bit. And those steps are uh, recognizing suffering um, acknowledging uh, suffering, feeling, uh, or thinking about what it would be like to be that other person, connecting to our desire to alleviate suffering, and then taking some action to alleviate that suffering. That sounds familiar. I guess the acknowledging part, right, that can be hard maybe because is that the part where you feel like real feel the pain that maybe you're you're not trying to feel. Or? I think that's the second step, Josh. What we'd call um, uh, connecting with the pain or uh, imagining uh, what it would be like to be in the other person's shoes, or literally feeling uh, the feelings that they're feeling. I think that's what you're talking about, which we can also call empathy. Yes, yeah. So that's a good one to sort of suss out, and I, I took some notes about that. Um, it seems like there is perhaps some danger in being really empathetic, but not being compassionate. What's, what are the red flags? Right. So I think the importance of distinguishing empathy from compassion is, uh, really, uh, important nowadays with uh, so many of us experiencing burnout. So if we basically, if we stay in that step two of compassion, which is empathy, feeling the feelings of the other person, um, then we're prone to head towards burnout, depression, discouragement. Um, so while empathy is good and natural and healthy, um, uh, we don't want to stay there too long. We want to shift from that state of empathy into uh, our desire to help. Uh, relieve that suffering, and then taking some action to do that. Totally. Um, is is it always possible to do the fourth step, the the action part? I think uh, I think that the experts would say yes, although the action might look quite different than what we imagine an action to be. So simply being present uh, with someone suffering helps alleviate that suffering. So there's research that shows um, if someone is giving you shocks, uh, administering some pain to you, and you have a loved one with you, 
that is just in the room with you, not touch, not even touching you, your perception of pain goes down compared to having a stranger in the room. So this um, this idea of taking an action might just simply being be uh, being present with a loved one in the midst of their suffering, and just by being there, not running away, not pretending the pain suffering isn't happening, but just being present there helps to alleviate the suffering. So that, that's, that's always an action we can take, um, whether it's on the phone or through Zoom or being physically present has a big effect. Hmm. Yeah. So maybe just to back up for a little bit. So, um, you know, the compassion cultivation training course that you teach um, comes out of some ancient wisdom that's now being translated and made accessible for, you know, our modern Americans and other English speakers or, or non-English speakers. What's the history of of this um, sort of curriculum mm-hmm. or education? And, and um, how did we arrive at this point of, of being able to take these courses? In mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, Compassion cultivation training uh, specifically was written or developed at Stanford University School of Medicine. I think it was in 2009. And it was written uh, by uh, 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 Tupton Jimpa, who began his life, young life, as a monk in Tibet, um, who is now a a scholar. Um, He in the West, living in Canada. So he was the principal author, along with five uh, founding faculty members of um, Compassion Institute. And so it's really informed by by Tibetan Buddhist practice in many ways, Josh, but also um, tempered by these five um, psychotherapists and psychologists who helped co-write the manual. So it's every week we do a dyadic practice informed by psychology. So CCT really is a unique program in that it's bringing these ancient wisdom practices to cultivate uh, empathy and compassion and action, but it's also informed by psychology, by nonviolent communication, dyadic awareness practices, and so on. Got it. And why why were they creating this uh, this content? I mean, who who needs mm-hmm. it? Yeah, that's a great question. So people always say to me, "I'm too compassionate. I don't need compassion training. I'm too compassionate." But what they don't understand is that being too compassionate is a problem, right? So often the people that are telling me this are um, not taking care of themselves. And they're instead, they're focused on trying to alleviate suffering outside of themselves. But this becomes a big problem, as we know now, even culturally, because uh, people are so burnt out. Nurses and doctors, especially during the pandemic, are at high risk to burn out. So it's more important than ever to train in compassion, which we all have naturally. But we need to get this balance between compassion going outwards for others and also compassion going uh, towards ourselves. And, and this is one of the things the research shows CCT helps people do, helps people develop more of a balance 
between their compassion towards themselves and compassion uh, sent outward. Yeah, my interest in the compassion stuff was uh, mostly because I'm not a healthcare provider, and I it was mostly about emotion regulation and mm-hmm. um, you know sitting yeah. with difficult yes. emotions and um, just another tool to possibly because you know especially in like the anxiety literature there's so much focused on like how to operationally live while anxiety is around and to sort of manage it but there isn't so much information maybe more now about how to actually you know offer yourself some soothing um it seems to be missing a little bit yes and and i think you know it's so much better understood now, just in the last 15 years. You know, Stephen Porges, if you ever get the opportunity to contact him, um, he, I think he was at Pennsylvania for a while, but he has developed this polyvagal theory that's informing now the therapies uh, around trauma recovery and also anxiety. And he really brought to the fore what what we knew earlier for, in attachment theory, but he's really brought out for everyone else the critical importance of being able to feel safe in our bodies. And this is, and to be able to soothe and regulate our physiological system and that's the basis for regulating our psychological system, right? So it's always physical regulation first and then um, psychological regulation. Um, and of course, they can, it's bi-directional as we get older. You know, mm-hmm. with babies, you got to do the body first and then the, the mental comes second. But they can be informed both directions uh, as adults. But anyway, this critical point of being able to feel safe in our bodies, when we don't feel safe to reestablish safety is really the basis of feeling secure. Yeah, yeah. It's so, it's it's always a wonder to me that some of these really powerful tools are not more mainstream. Yeah, so I think another thing that's interesting is, you know, the world is waking up more to mindfulness and meditation and you know on the heels of like the yoga craze people are are really starting to get interested in like sitting you know and meditating but the this the compassion stuff even though it i know it's a part of those teachings um sometimes plays second fiddle I think I've asked you this before, um, if you can reach nirvana in both ways. And I think you responded, yes. But can you talk a little bit about how, even when you go on a meditation retreat, maybe one of the meditations during the day is meta. And we should talk about that. But most is just this, you know, straight breath stuff. So what's the deal there? Uh, I think it's a big problem, Josh, That, in my opinion. You know, I was a serious uh, Zen practitioner for probably 15 years. Um, by serious, I mean I lived in the Zen center in the basement, you know, beneath the temple, the Zendo, for a couple of years um, and lived next door for a couple of years. So I was really serious into it. And I tell you what, I learned very little about compassion in that 15 years. Um, I, I did um, l- I did learn to sit with 
discomfort and suffering because that's what we did, you know, often 10 hours a day sitting with um, pain and discomfort. So I did learn to do that. Um, but the the compassion was, was, it just wasn't really trained, frankly. And I think in the olden days, they just thought, oh, if you teach... Um, uh, Zen practice, compassion will come naturally at some point. Or if you teach, you know, other kind of meditation, compassion will come naturally with it. Well, that just wasn't the case for me. And when when I uh, took um, compassion cultivation training in 2015, when I heard about it in 2014 at the Mind and Life uh, training in Boston, I was like, that's what I need. I, I need that training because um, I've done meditation forever. And it, it was so profound for me because I think it was sort of this, not sort of, it was this kind of closure of healing a lot of my heart. And I think it is what what it is for a lot of people that do it, Josh. They feel like they've been so unresponded to that at a deep level, they haven't truly been seen. And if you're going to uh, develop compassion for yourself, you have to, the first step is to see your own suffering and to really see yourself and listen to yourself and, and learn to be with that suffering is, is, is the healing. That's the healing piece, the missing piece for so many of us. And I wasn't any different than anyone else. Yeah. 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 That, that definitely resonates with me. So do you feel like um, and and when we talk about the meta practices, those are like the the heart openers and the loving kindness meditation. Do do you feel like um, when you took CCT, that stuff suddenly started to make sense, or was it your first exposure to some of those kinds of practices, or what what exactly clicked mm -hmm. for you? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I know I knew about Sharon Salzberg work and loving kindness practice. And I liked it. I didn't do much of it, though, before CCT. Um, but I think what really clicked for me with CCT is, um, and I think this is really important for people, you don't have to meditate to practice compassion. You don't have to meditate to, to develop a compassionate mindset and to live your values. And so this is super important to me because I, the most of the people that I teach, and I teach now several hundred people a year, they are not meditators. They're not going to meditate. 90% of them are not interested in meditation, but 100% of them are interested in, in living their deepest values in a better way. Um, and so when they connect to the compassion practices, they're like, oh, this weaves in with what I've learned the Catholic faith that I've learned my whole practice, my whole life, or this fits exactly with my view of what a virtuous human being should be. Um, so it's really this true um, meeting place where people say, uh, I want to live more uh, my deepest values. And this, these practices help me do that. And I'm not interested in the meditation part. Yeah, I hear you. That's interesting. But so much of the homework for the compassion cultivation training is meditation, right? So do you mean afterwards they're not interested or? I, I probably, Josh, the people in my classes, and I think this is true ac across 
CCT teachers um, because they've done some research at Compassion Institute. But most of the people are doing very little meditation, like formal meditation, but they are working with the phrases of loving kindness um, in their daily life. They are reminding themselves, so this is a moment of suffering. Uh, may I be free from fear and anger? You know, may I find peace? These kind of, may I live with ease? All these things are really impacting them. But most of the people are not sitting down for more than five or 10 minutes and doing a formal meditation practice. Mm, okay. Yeah, so in that way, it's, you know, in my mind, I think of like MBSR or mindfulness-based stress reduction and CCT being pretty similar, only the content's different. But but MBSR is, is quite focused on that daily, I think, 45 minutes they, they at least ask you to do. So I think it's so helpful to really pull those two apart because um, they're very different. So I think... Um, there's uh, even an updated manual for CCT now. The Really, the emphasis is cultivating a, a compassionate mindset uh, and being able to practice compassion in your daily life. So Tupton Jimpa, who's the principal author, he said, you know, compassion is really about how you treat the person in front of you, you know? So, and he's the one that, for, that I first heard him say, you know, uh, you don't have to meditate to practice compassion. So I think MBSR is really about training attention, training the mind. And in compassion training, we do start with being able to settle the mind because anything you're going to learn, if you're going to learn how to hit a baseball or play tennis, you have to be able to focus. So we always start with settling the mind practice and breath-focused awareness practice. But then the practice is, is all about um, using these phrases like, um, uh, may you uh, be free from suffering, for example. We use that phrase not uh, to elicit an internal uh, experience of connection, warm-heartedness, goodwill. I want you to be happy and well. I want to be happy and well myself. So we use these phrases really, um, they train our neurobiology, right? We use these phrases to evoke an internal experience of compassion and loving kindness. And the more, you know, the belief is with neuroscience, the more that we are having these internal states of warmth and care and concern for others and our own suffering, then the more natural that becomes as our response to anything that we're faced with throughout the day, right? So we're really training our body, our, our heart, our neurobiology, and then our mindset, our intellect, to move in the direction of compassion um, when we're faced with any challenge in our day. Totally. Yeah. So it's quite different than just practicing, you know, mindful awareness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems that like in in a way the uh the sort of mindfulness practice has really insisted on getting people to do things on their cushion and hope 
and hope that it translates into their daily lives. Whereas it sounds like from what you're saying, the focus is really um, your your life. And and if you're into sitting, maybe you can do some of the, the Tonglen or the Meta or, or whatever in preparation for going out into the world and using it. Yeah, I think to be clear, um, you know, in CCT, we ask people to spend 20 minutes a day um, doing a meditation practice. But I, what I'm saying is the research that I'm aware of, of my students and other people's participants is um, probably 20% of, of the participants are actually doing that. But the others are reporting a big impact in their life um, from not doing that, but just taking the mindset and the phrases into their daily life and connecting with their their intention to to be compassionate. Mm-hmm. I think if we're not careful, we'll make it sound too easy. Yeah, well, it it is it's not easy at all, is it? <laughs> you have your own experience, but no, it's very challenging. But I think what's so uplifting about it, and this is an important piece that also I think distinguished from mindfulness, is when we act compassionately, we do get a little compassion high or a compassion lift. And we do secrete uh, uh, oxytocin and and we do um, secrete um, endorphins that make us feel good. So this is um, what we call um, inherently rewarding. So this is what's so wonderful about the compassion work, especially now when people are burnt out, they're tired, they're exhausted, they're losing hope. And right now to know that if you can take this compassionate mindset and take these practices and, um, be, and act from that place, that it is energizing and rewarding. It's uplifting. And and that's so important because people are overwhelmed right now. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, and I have noticed in myself, especially while taking the course, but um, you know, now as I continue to keep um, the loving kindness practices in mind when I when I practice mm-hmm. that, I do have moments of uh, feeling good when I'm wishing others mm-hmm. well. So it's it's a nice way to be. I guess there's a there's a possible blend that's possible. Mm-hmm. I was listening to a talk by, uh, I think it was Joseph Goldstein, and he was talking about meeting all the objects of attention with a friendly attitude. Um, you know, whatever shows up, like "Hi, how you doing? Thanks for being here." Um, and so maybe that gets some of the good parts of compassion and and melds them in with attention practice. Absolutely. And you have to attend to notice suffering, right? You have to, you have to attend to notice your own suffering and the suffering of others. You have to be able to work with your attention for sure. So they're not, they're not completely separate, but it is nice to tease them out, uh, for people because, um, uh, I think compassion is, is what's needed, um, so profoundly in the world, you know, I think almost everyone would agree with that statement. Um, but we have to practice it and cultivate it because what happens, Josh, is, if, as you know, we lose our compassion so quickly. 
um, when um, someone says something rude to us, for example, or cuts us off in traffic, or if someone doesn't believe what we believe, we can lose our compassion so much. And so the reason we need to train in compassion, although we have it naturally, is that our compassion is not very stable. It's not very strong. It's underdeveloped. It goes away if we're angry or hungry or disappointed or whatever. So we train to make it more consistent. Totally, totally. Or scared. Sure. Um, I think is a big strong one. emotions. Any strong emotions? Yes, we can lose our compassion right away. Mm-hmm. I was uh, riding my bike this morning to work, and I took the sidewalk to avoid some red light that was in mm-hmm. my way, and uh, I came kind of quick around a corner where I shouldn't mm-hmm. have been, you know, on a bicycle, and and then I heard a a, a person say like yow yowza or like you idiot mm-hmm. you know and uh and she was right you know i i was not acting appropriately but i was i was glad that my initial response to her wasn't like you're the idiot it was it was sorry i said sorry and uh i think maybe part of that could be some of the training because um, it, it it normally feels bad you know when people call you a bad name yeah, that's great. Good for you. The old mind did something good there. So um, there's some really great gems. So you were talking about the steps. I wrote some that have really resonated with me from class. There's So if you're experiencing like a difficult moment, you can go through these four steps. And um, one is, you know, this is a moment of suffering. So that's sort of the acknowledgement part. And then I like this second one, all humans suffer. And that this suffering, I I just thought this was such a great idea. It connects us rather than isolates us. Because there's so many people out there who might be suffering with the exact same problem, you know, that you're having at the moment. Uh, May I be kind to myself in this moment? May I give myself the compassion I need? I I thought that was really great. And those, uh, Josh, are Kristen Neff's four statements. And... um, People can find out about her work at self-compassion.org, I think. Yeah, those are four very beautiful, profound statements, uh, and we can use them for our own suffering um, as well, right? So, And the suffering of others. Right, so that's another good distinction that, you know, people who have taken, you know, her class mm-hmm. or know about that, this, the compassion Cultivation training is not just about self-compassion. Yes, that's a that's a good distinction. So Kristen F has a um, a great eight-week training and that is for self-compassion um, alone. And CCT, very importantly, you know, starts with loving kindness and loving kindness and compassion for a loved one, and then we turn towards ourselves and we spend two weeks on. Um, loving kindness and compassion for ourselves. And then we begin to expand our compassion through common humanity, really recognizing that um, all humans are the same in two ways. We all want to be happy. We all want to avoid suffering. And then we we work to expand our compassion outward from there. So it it's really a methodical uh, curriculum, really uh, each step each prior step, each subsequent step builds on the prior one. It's really 
I think goes deep that way. Mm-hmm. And and also in there, there's something about broccoli. If I'm remembering that's right. Correctly. That's right. So one of the ways I think that was Susan Fisk's research. F I S K E is her last name. She was at Princeton, and um, she did research on how we categorize people. Our first impression we categorize people on uh, on a warmth uh, scale and also on a competence scale. And we can dehumanize or devalue people very quickly. Um, and she did this experiment to help people rehumanize other people. Um, and one of the questions in that research was, um, imagine this person that you've dehumanized. Imagine, ask yourself this question, um, does this person like broccoli? And with that question then, the person begins to imagine this human being that they've kind of dehumanized, they begin to imagine them in their kitchen or at the grocery store or at a restaurant, and they begin to see them as a human being, you know, that has preferences. And and so that was one way she found that where people could rehumanize each other. Yeah, it's and it's uh, really easy to remember that one. So do you like broccoli? I do. I really Good. like it. Me too. I found out recently that it cooks quite well in the microwave. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> Would you be interested at all in maybe telling us a little bit more about one of the practices or even leading mm-hmm. one? Sure. Um, sure, I could lead a short practice. Do you have a preference, Josh, of... Yeah, maybe let's start easy. Uh, maybe one that's like uh, compassion for for others. Okay, for a loved one. Yeah. Okay. So I always tell people the first thing you do is take a good posture. So take a posture where you feel somewhat balanced. For example, you might have your feet hip distance apart, flat on the floor. And you can check with the curve of your spine uh, in your chair and find the right angle at the curve of your the bottom of your spine that lets your spine sort of naturally be upright. And check with your head and neck. So you want to find a posture that's upright but not stiff. And then you can just begin to pay attention to your breath. And for this practice, we can think of a bring to mind a loved one that we have some concern about right now. Maybe they're not feeling well, recovering from COVID or in the middle of it, or experiencing the psychological stressor, trying to find a job, trying to move. So we can bring to mind a loved one and picture that loved one in front of you.
And notice what you begin to feel in your body when you imagine this loved one in front of you. You might feel some warmth in your chest, some desire to reach out and connect with this person, some care for them. And so imagining this loved one and also mindful of a a stressor or challenge that they're working with, you can offer these phrases for your loved one. May you be free from the suffering. May you be free from fear and anger. May you find peace. May you live with ease. So again, sensing into your body what it feels like to offer these phrases of love and care for your loved one. We can offer these phrases again Imagining our loved one receiving the effects of these phrases as we offer them. May you be free from this suffering. May you be free from fear and anger. May you find peace. May you live with ease. And imagine your loved one feeling the effects of this practice. Checking in again with your body and noticing any warmth or care, natural compassion for your loved one, your desire to help. You can offer these phrases one last time. Imagining our loved one in front of us again. May you be free from the suffering. May you be free from fear and anger. May you find peace. May you live with ease. And now you can imagine your loved one feeling happy and well. Imagine what their face and body look like, feeling happy and well. And then you can bring your attention back to your own body. Notice what the impact of this practice on your own body and mind. How do you feel and how is your thinking as this practice comes to a close? And then, mm-hmm. yeah, you. and that concludes the practice. Yeah. Oh, sorry for no, cutting you no off. No worries. Um, yeah, thank you so much. That was wonderful. You're welcome. Uh, I have a question about imagination. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes I have trouble keeping figures 
in my mind's eye. They seem mm-hmm. to disappear or mm-hmm. they are they aren't well illustrated, mm-hmm. I guess. What, what, do, what, what, what do you recommend in those uh, Like imagining a loved one is hard for you? Um, I would start with a picture. Yeah. Um, you can have a picture uh, and just start with the picture. And as you keep doing that practice, you will kind of memorize. Um, it will help you memorize some details. And then you can try without the picture. Uh, and and it'll get more detailed. So that's one thing. The other thing is some people are not very visual that way. And for them, it can help them to just imagine uh, a, a, a situation where they were with that person. Like, oh, I, c- I remember that hike I did with so-and-so. And so you just imagine a time when you were together to kind of feel that connection. And then you offer the phrases just from that place of connection. Got it. Yeah, I think the picture is really good advice. It it reminds me a lot of learning to draw. You know, in the sure. beginning, you need to have a picture in front of you before you can start sure. um, illustrating yeah. correctly. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I know that... Uh, well, because I'm a member of a community that you're the um, host hostess, I guess. Ho- ho- hostess <laughs> of the the uh, Pact community. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, we people are busy. They're overwhelmed. They're burnt out. That's not news to anyone. So, I wanted to try to deliver support for getting compassion and loving kindness practices into our daily lives that is super um, short and available, driven by an app. So I host this online uh, community called PACT, which is Practical Application of Compassion Training. So people could have trained it with Kristen Naff, or they could have trained with me or many other compassion teachers, and they can join our online community and where they get daily prompts and weekly topics and monthly themes where we're really applying our loving kindness and compassion practices um, to go beyond actually to help us cultivate a healthy mind uh, really. So um, compassion really is the basis of a healthy mind. Um, So I'm not the first person to say that, uh, but I copied it from some pretty smart people. And where where do they where can people find that online and in your work? In yeah, general? I think the easiest is just to go to Sarah um, No H S A R A at sarahowenswoodard.com. Um, also, they could go to compassionwithstrength.com. And those will get them to the community. And also, uh, I have a CCT class starting February second, and also. An abbreviated mm. course, kindness and compassion course, starting February twenty second. So two two um, quick ways to get get compassion practice up and running. Totally, yeah, and I can I can say from experience, I really enjoyed the the compassion course. Here's kind of an oddball question for you before we kind of get on our way. So this compassion stuff. I think it's found in other mammals. Um, is it also in reptiles and 
anyone who has babies or where does who else gets to do this? I think kind of people thing? say mammals, Josh, I'm no expert, mm-hmm. but I think people say mammals um, uh, have uh, empathy and compassion. They cry for each other. Um, I saw this amazing video of this, uh, was it um, a great ape? I can't remember what type of it. It was a gorilla, I think, that was had a baby that was communicating to a human mother and her baby like through the glass. And it was just clear this gorilla was trying to connect to the human baby just as she was with her gorilla infant, you know. And so, yeah, there's no question that mammals have have compassion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that where it ends? Or would, you know, lizard mothers tend to their lizard children? I don't children think so. I think that- they hatch, they pump out eggs and leave them. I, I don't know, though. You have to get a biologist mm-hmm. on here. to. But I, I, people talk about the mammalian brain, right, that our, our more recently developed aspect of the brain that helps us to attune um, to, the, to the psychology and the physiology of another in a way that's marked by caring concern. Totally. Cool. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for your time. Is there anything we didn't cover in this uh, 45 minutes or so that you think is worth mentioning? Oh, the last thing I would say, Josh, is that compassion training is so hopeful uh, and it's so grounded in science, you know, that people that are looking for um, short training that will yield uplifting results can go to Compassion Institute or Compassion with Strength and find classes and really have a strategy to cultivate, you know, happiness and warm-hearted connection.